0: Welcome to TALC, teaching and learning consultation skills. This is the TALC Talks podcast, helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills, to get better outcomes, and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction. TALC module 11, chapter 4. Holding the calm resolving conflicts and changing minds. Aggressive and abusive encounters with patients are horrible for the healthcare professionals involved, especially if the abuse is personal, directed towards the individual's characteristics such as race, gender, their disability or their age. Clearly, such abuse is unacceptable and organisations and teams have responsibilities to prevent and deal with the discrimination and abuse. This is discussed in detail in Talc 11, Chapter 2. What does it mean in practice to challenge abuse? If our aim is to eliminate discrimination, then this requires some people to change, to change their behaviour, their attitudes and their minds. Is this possible? And if so, how might change occur? Is changing people's attitudes even a relevant part of the healthcare professional's role? It must first be recognised that wider social and political changes are also needed to move inequality, discrimination and prejudice into history. Racist, misogynistic and other discriminatory laws and policies have the effects of creating ideas, stereotypes and assumptions about people. These arose historically in the context of colonialism and its activities and have been used to justify the power imbalances the inequalities and discriminations that exist in many societies, including our own. However, as such effects arose in history, so they can change over time as we make new history. So, does this mean that individual encounters between healthcare professionals and patients who express discriminatory ideas cannot change minds? Many have identified specific skills for use in the consultation that could aid this process for everybody's long-term benefit. While it might seem easier simply to remove an aggressive or abusive patient, the zero tolerance approach, this does risk simply transferring the problem to another service or to another individual healthcare professional to manage. Angry people are not easy to deal with, yet if they are approached appropriately, They may make significant shifts in their attitudes and behaviours that mean they will behave more appropriately when they access healthcare in the future. Achieving this is surely an aim worth putting some effort into as it is in everyone's benefit that conversations can be calm and productive. There is now considerable research into the processes by which people change their thinking and behaviour. It will be useful to bring this new knowledge into the healthcare context it is in everyone's long-term interest to use the opportunities offered by conversations in healthcare to reduce the likelihood that people resort to aggression or abuse, so that racist or other unacceptable behaviours change and fade away. This chapter will discuss some of the ways in which various approaches and techniques can offer the possibilities of change. The aim is to provide some background information about the ideas and communication methods that inform Talc Module 11 Chapter 6 which is called Holding the Calm, using the specific consultation skills that empower healthcare professionals to handle difficult and challenging situations. Talc 6 is about what happens in the heat of the moment but this chapter, which we're in now, explores the rich fields of knowledge that inform communication that is non-violent and compassionate and which often changes minds. This is necessarily a very brief summary. There is more information available in the References and Resources section and any interested healthcare professional can delve more deeply into what is known about how attitudes and beliefs can develop and change over time. This chapter covers how minds change, the evidence about what works, non-violent communication, principles and practice, what mediation and negotiation practice can offer, and considers whether we can get beyond conflict resolution to some kind of transformation. So how do minds change? What is the evidence about what works? Joe Whalen, psychologist, says, you can't move a string by pushing it, you have to pull. Humans like to think of themselves as rational beings who consider the facts, think for themselves and make up their own minds in ways based on reason. We think we are immune to the effects of advertising. We like to think we can be critical of what we read in the newspapers or hear on TV. And we believe that we develop our own thoughts and ideas, which in turn influence our behaviour, the choices we make and what we do or say. Based on this idea, If we are presented with evidence, facts or figures to suggest that our ideas may be wrong, then we should readily change our views. To some extent, this is true in science, where a constant search for new evidence can eventually change commonly accepted views. Even in science, this is not a straightforward process. There may have to be many pieces of new information gathered together before most scientists in a specific field change their thinking about a particular topic. However, in most settings, the complete opposite is the case. Faced with new information or facts that seem to contradict their beliefs, most people do not change their ideas. Most healthcare professionals will remember occasions when they carefully explain the dangers of smoking to a patient, someone who's perhaps already suffering from lung disease. And yet the patient not only does not give up smoking, but may even resent being nagged about smoking again, as they see it. Or even deny that smoking is harmful, saying things like, my dad smoked till he died age 92, so it's obviously fine. People tend to listen only to those people who agree with them, the so-called echo chamber or bubble effect, which reinforces the views they hold already. Sometimes new information is simply disregarded. It's seen as discredited or not useful to the actual individual person who's deciding what to do. For example, information about vaccinations is not the only factor people take into account when they make decisions about attending for immunisation. They take into account their feelings and motivations and attitudes to collective activities. And yet we have repeatedly seen in recent history that people can and do change their minds, often seemingly quite abruptly. Here are some examples. It used to be widely believed that it was essential to be able to smoke in pubs, theatres and on public transport. Now that is no longer possible, most people accept this and would even argue that it's better for everyone overall. It used to be illegal to undertake homosexual sex. Lesbian, gay and trans people could not legally marry or enter into civil partnerships. It was accepted by many that this was the normal state of things. Now the law and many people's attitudes have completely shifted. In 2010, the majority of people in the United States opposed same-sex marriage, but this had flipped to acceptance after 2012, just a couple of years later. Not only was abortion illegal until 1966 in the UK, but many people regarded it as profoundly immoral. Many, although not all, have changed their views about this issue. Clearly not everyone changes their views in response to campaigns, changes in the law or changes in social expectations, although many do. So what does make people change their minds? Is it the facts, or is it something else? There's been a great deal of research about how people change their minds from positions that are entrenched, rigid and passionately held, and the findings may be quite surprising. In his book, How Minds Change, David McRaney summarises a large body of evidence about how people come to modify their views, even from quite extreme positions. For example, he quotes individuals who changed from believing there should be a death penalty for homosexuality to be campaigning for full acceptance of LGBT people in society. Quite a shift. Research shows that conversations change people more than debates or arguments. Ethical persuasion, which means without coercion, exploring people's own thinking rather than giving them facts and recognising the emotional drivers for changing minds, seem to be much more effective than arguing with facts and figures. Motivations and feelings play a big part here. Ethical persuasion means that people perceive that they are free to reject the communicated view, and they're not threatened with dire consequences if they don't act as the persuader wishes. McGraney terms that as coercion, not persuasion. The person who wishes to change another's mind makes it overt what their own position is, but rather than trying to make an individual change their mind, they invite a discussion to enable someone to describe, explain and justify their own existing views. One example McRaney explores is that of LGBT issues in California when there was a defeat for a proposed law to allow same-sex marriage. LGBT activists specifically went to talk to people who voted against the proposed change in the law. They did not attempt to change their views, but rather to understand their reasoning in full. They asked open questions such as, how did you first learn about this issue? Do you personally know anyone who's been affected? Such questions are followed up with sensitive and active listening, exploring ideas picking up clues about what lies behind somebody's thinking and following them up. Clearly this uses the skills of Talc 3, information gathering. The aim is for a conversation, not instruction. In the context of health, this might mean asking in an open way, how did you first come to think that it is best to have a white doctor rather than someone else? Or do you personally know anyone has been subject to prejudice against them in any way? The research showed that if the conversation focused on the speaker's story, they began to think about their own thinking. This enables an understanding to develop about how and why they think as they do. The key is to access the emotions that drive their thinking. Why is this so important to them? What does it mean to them? People don't respond to facts, but rather to these processes that help them understand their own current thinking. However many facts or pieces of evidence are provided, people tend to ignore them if they're not congruent with their own prior opinions. Unpacking the life experiences that produce certain opinions can help people to understand where their opinions came from originally. This enables the listener to infer and then articulate their motivations, so perhaps saying something like Mm, you prefer to be with people who share your own cultural experiences and you think that's more likely with a white person and what that feels like so that feels comfortable and familiar to you. Asking about someone they know who's been affected for example by prejudice or lack of legal safety helps the listener to invite reflection on any new experiences they've had since they formed their opinions originally. Questions perhaps such as Has anyone in your family gone to live somewhere other than where they were born? What was that like for them? Active listening will reveal material for further reflection, which will be different for each individual. Perhaps their family came to the UK many years ago or even generations ago and suffered from discrimination. Perhaps family members have made a success of emigration to another country or even a different city or region. What's that been like for them? People change their minds for emotional rather than rational reasons. It is their motivations that matter, not necessarily their rationales. Exploring emotional responses to a subject can have the effect of creating a little bit of cognitive dissonance, whereby new experiences do not tally with prior assumptions, beliefs or feelings. Cognitive dissonance is uncomfortable and feels awkward. And this can have two effects. Sometimes the awkwardness means people simply discount new experiences and blank them out. And this is often why bombarding people with a lot of facts doesn't work. People simply discount them. They may also use other methods to discredit new information. For example, saying, oh, that came from a biased source, or it was a fake video. This fits with what we know about how the brain works when receiving other incoming information. We do not constantly update the view we get from our vision or our hearing. We assume the world is how we expect it to be. This takes a lot less effort than constantly checking reality. We notice anomalies or incongruous things far more. If we expect to see all the children in a schoolyard wearing a specific uniform colour, we'll ignore most of them and our attention will be drawn towards someone wearing a different coloured sweater or a different hat. So if someone experiences a different emotion in respect of an issue, they may notice that more and it may make them reflect more on how their views have come about. So this means that conversations change minds more than debates or conflicts, which have winners or losers. No one wants to be a loser. Exploring thinking and motivations creates room for people to explore what matters to them without heading to the dead end of winning. In conversation, people can be exposed to new ideas in a way that is less threatening than during a conflict, argument or debate. This relaxed encounter enables them to take a look at new information and see if it fits their prior assumptions and feelings or not. In a healthcare conversation, there may be only limited time available, but many of these principles will be the same, and they're summarised in a table in the PDF which I'm going to describe. This is based on thousands of conversations which have been analysed. Conversations about changed, analysed for context from many, many different places. The steps that often lead to people changing their views. have actually been codified in an interesting idea called street epistemology. This is described in David McRaney's book. Epistemology means to think about thinking, something we, find very difficult to do often. But the steps that lead people to changing their views are these. First of all, establish rapport. Establish that you're not going to shame or berate them and ask permission to explore how they think. Ask them how strongly they feel about an issue on the scale of one to 10. For example, I must see a white nurse. Share a story about someone else who was affected by this. For example, last week a lady said the same thing to me because she was worried any other nurses would not be properly trained. She learned about the qualifications all our nurses have to have before they can work here, including their language skills, and she was happy to see Nurse X in the end and they got on really well. Then, ask them to rate how strongly they feel again. Importantly, ask them to explain how they came to make any changes and how does that number come to feel right to you? The important thing is to repeat back their reasons in your own words and keep checking back until they are satisfied that you have fully understand their reasons and viewpoint and can summarise it to them accurately. This part is not about explaining your own views but about really deeply listening to and understanding the other person's views even if you don't accept them yourself. Ask, was there a time when you didn't feel that way? What made them change their attitude to their present attitude again listen actively summarize and repeat continue to repeat back accurately what they say do not argue with them but listen accurately and summarize then briefly share a personal story of how you reach your own position ask their final rating of how strongly they feel wrap up and wish them well in the future The key seems to be that both parties share their stories with respectful and non-judgmental listening. Being non-judgmental builds trust, which increases honest conversation and lowers barriers. When the professional shares their own story, people become engaged and swept up in it and accept it as a story, not an attempt to persuade them. The research could be summed up as this. I'm a social primate. You are a social pro, mate. It's all good and safe here. Then share a story in a way that means they will not feel compelled to argue against it. What about non-violent communication, the principles and practice of which have been developed over many years? When someone is being shouted at with aggressive or abusive language, it is pretty clear that the communication is a violent one. Joining in aggressively, driven by adrenaline and the hormones flooding out of the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that processes fearful and threatening stimuli, usually only fans the flames. It creates more tension. This can even spill over into physical violence. For many years, there has been a movement to develop non-violent communication for use in many different settings, aiming to transform conflict into collaboration, so that all parties can get their needs met without violence, coercion, or blame, the talk resources aim to create and hold the calm in communications, so that conversations will be effective and satisfying for both parties. The term nonviolent communication was developed and disseminated by Marshall Rosenberg. In response to his personal experiences of violence and conflict, he uses the term nonviolence to refer to what he calls our natural state of compassion when violence has subsided from the heart. People often take violence to mean physical damage or hurt, yet words can also result in hurt and pain, whether for ourselves or other people. The core premise of nonviolent communication is that all human beings have needs which they spend their time trying to fulfil, and these needs may encompass practical needs but also deeper needs such as the desire for safety, belonging or respect. The process of nonviolent communication is one of observations, recognition of feelings and needs and the making of requests. It is a process whereby there is empathic listening to the other person combined with honestly expressing oneself. Now, healthcare professionals of all kinds experience satisfaction and even enhance self-esteem when their own practical efforts contribute to the well-being of another person, whether that's a patient or a colleague. Nonviolent communication proposes that we increase this satisfaction by avoiding reactions that are automatic or habitual, triggered by the sympathetic nervous system and the amygdala. Instead, we can consciously choose our behaviour, our words and responses based on the facts of the situation. These facts are to be found in our careful observations of what is being seen, heard or felt outside ourselves, combined with an empathic identification of what we are feeling inside ourselves and what our own needs are. This enables honest expression of our own situation. At the same time, Using this approach to the other person, with respectful, empathic attention, hearing their deeper needs, enables us to notice the requests that arise from those deep needs. Judgment and criticism tend to lead to defensiveness, attacking or complete withdrawal, with resistance and even violent reactions. When the focus is on accurate observations, clarifying what is being felt and what is needed, we avoid diagnosing or judging this deep listening fosters respect attentiveness and builds the desire for mutual cooperation as rosenberg would say from the heart the four stages of nonviolent communication are observations feelings needs and requests the essence of it is in our consciousness of the four components not in the actual words that are exchanged. It's sometimes possible to experience all four pieces of the process without uttering a single word. Observations. By first pausing to breathe and observe, the nonviolent communication process allows room for reflection and choice about our next actions. Reflecting back the actions and words of the other person in a strictly non-judgmental way is the key to moving forwards effectively. Listen beyond what they say to what they need and feel. So, for example, the observation might be, I hear you shouting. I can see that you're very angry. Rather than saying, don't shout at me, that's a horrible way to behave. Feelings. The feelings of both parties can be identified. Feelings are clues about the state of our needs. If we express feelings of appreciation or friendliness, it is likely our needs for human connection or belonging are being met, at least to some extent. If the feelings expressed are those of angry impatience, it is likely that our human needs for safety, security or understanding are not being met. Sometimes feelings are articulated overtly. I am very angry. Sometimes inferences about feelings may be put into the whole picture and the thought might be, the internal thought might then be, this person is shouting and seems angry. I also wonder if they're afraid or distressed about something. Both parties have needs which connect to the feelings that they are experiencing. Needs are things that we deeply value for our well-being faced with an angry or aggressive patient, any healthcare professional will have needs that include a sense of safety and calm and a sense of a secure structure to work in. The healthcare professional may have to observe carefully and listen deeply to understand an angry patient's needs, as these may not be very clear initially even to themselves. While not all observations or requests are openly articulated, Empathic connection to feelings and needs enables things to move forwards. Requests are very specific expressions of what we want from another person, things that would make life easier. Clarifying the specific requests that may be behind the feelings and needs of the other person is one way forwards, as is making specific requests about our own needs in a calm and respectful way. I understand you're feeling very angry about the care you're being offered right now. Would you be willing for us to discuss how we can deal with this situation together? There's much more information about the processes and the use of this approach to creating calm conversations in the references and resources of this chapter. A non-violent approach has actually been shown to be the most effective way to get a message across. One way to think about this is to imagine a communication being like an open hand or a closed fist. A closed fist communication occurs if we are judgmental, if we meet feelings and needs with flat refusals, repetitions of our own positions, or if we use harsh or negative words emphasising the needs of only one of the parties. A closed fist usually meets with opposition. An open-handed communication is non-judgmental. Speaking is there aiming to enable better listening. Both persons' needs are identified and acknowledged. An invitation can be much more disarming than a confrontation. What do mediation and negotiation practice offer? Mediation is a set of processes and practices that enable people to resolve conflicts using the support of a trained mediator. This is widely used in legal settings, for example, in negotiating divorce settlements without resorting to expensive and bitter court cases. It's also used in business and by the police or military who need to deal with tense conflict situations. The approach is similar to that already described in nonviolent communication. And the key process is a deep listening and acknowledgement of everyone's point of view. Experience from many fields shows that this approach can be a very powerful way to reduce tension, resolve conflict and transform relationships. Can we go beyond conflict resolution to some kind of transformation? Rumi, a famous 13th century poet said, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, There is a field. I'll meet you there. I think this encapsulates the idea about going beyond simply the immediate. Being curious about the feelings and needs of others can help to de-escalate and relieve immediate conflicts. When people are invited to tell me more or asked, how can we work together to respect your needs and to respect my needs, trust develops. When this is combined with compassion for oneself and for others, then it is possible to move beyond the resolution of conflict into a positive transformation. A transformative approach assumes that conflict is normal and possibly even desirable in human relationships. Conflict doesn't mean combat, however. And if we accept the fact that there is going to be some conflict it changes the aim away from simply resolving an immediate problem which may mean suppressing it or pushing it into someone else's area towards ongoing evolving and intentional efforts to change the quality of the relationships that gave rise to the conflict in the first place when subject to abuse healthcare professionals can naturally tend to feel victimized weak or disempowered truthfully This is exactly how many abusive patients are already feeling as they blunder into aggressive ways to try and get their point across or to get their needs met if healthcare professionals use the empowering approaches implied by the materials in the holding the calm module they will be able to make more sense of conflicts they will be able to understand the meaning of what is happening and this empowers the healthcare professional when dealing with any situation that they encounter at work. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators. Making training available to all.